Last week in the Matthew's uh, or in Jesus' sermon on the mount in Matthew that we're going through, we came to a pivot point in the sermon when we heard Jesus say, "Unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, those who believe they were upholding the law of God as righteously as possible, unless our righteousness exceeds that, we would never enter the kingdom of heaven." And we were reminded last week that it's only through faith in Jesus that we ever gain such a righteousness. He really is the gate, the door, the way to the Father, to the kingdom of heaven. Only through Jesus, who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, we heard, only through him, he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law, do we gain the kind of righteousness that he speaks of here. Only through faith in him, who knew no sin, but became sin for us, that we would become the very righteousness of God. This morning, in the passages we've heard, uh, particularly from Matthew 5, 21 onwards, we're on the other side of that pivot point now, and we're going to hear what is this righteousness? How does it work out in life? What does it look like in practice? We've just sung, here in the cross I live. What does it look like to live in the cross of Christ? What does it look like to live in this righteousness which has been gifted to us? Because it's not just a theoretical righteousness. It's not just a notion of righteousness. It's a practical righteousness. It's a moral righteousness. And Jesus calls us to live this way, not to earn our salvation, not to get this righteousness, but to enjoy it, to enjoy the freedom and the blessing of that righteousness and to be salt and light to the earth, to the world to let our light shine so that God might be glorified. If we're thinking of gates still, whatever picture of a gate you've got in your mind, think of six pickets on a gate. Because there's six bits here that Jesus uses to explain, or just examples, six examples of what this righteousness looks like, these good works that he mentions that others might see and give glory to God. Just things that work out in normal everyday life. Areas like anger, Lust and marriage and divorce and faithfulness, revenge and love. Just a few light topics to cover in the next few weeks. And two of them we're going to look at this morning, family service or not, regarding anger and lust. Actually really important topics for our families, aren't they? Many of us will know uh, that in the eyes of God, these, these two examples, anger and lust, they come straight out of the commandments, the sixth and seventh commandments. And many of us will know that in the eyes of God, anger, unrighteous anger, is equated with murder. But that's not all that Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says far more than that, actually. And we often stop short thinking, yeah, yeah, anger equals murder, and we make sure we try not to be angry. He actually says do more than that. He often says throughout this, uh, this passage, he'll say, you have heard it said sometimes quoting the law, but not just the law. It's how people are interpreting the law of God. But he says, but I say to you how we should interpret the law. But then he actually adds an action or an attitude, a further application of what he's teaching here each time. In fact, in each of these six examples, Jesus calls us to go the extra mile. As God's kingdom children, we're not simply called to toe the line. Yep, I can do whatever I can up to this point and then not break the law and go. He doesn't just say that. He actually says, go the extra mile. 
The righteousness Jesus speaks of here is not merely a towing the line, barely keep the law sort of righteousness. If I do this, then I'll be okay. I'll keep clean and have no record against me. Now, he doesn't call us to a righteousness that equals that of the Pharisees in their mind. He calls us to a righteousness which exceeds it. A righteousness which goes the extra mile. Quite literally, a bit further on in verse 41, he actually says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Go the extra mile. But that principle is actually applied in each of these six examples. God's kingdom children, we're not just to be law-abiding citizens of heaven here on earth. We're to be love-abounding citizens on earth. Love actually fulfills the law, doesn't it, really? But we often distinguish between the two. After all, this is God's kingdom way of life. Just had a coronation. This is actually the way of the king, the true king. This is the way he lives and the way his son lives and the way all his children are called to live. The father and the son went the extra mile, didn't they, for us? We're called to live and love the same way. Let's have a look at the passage. You have heard of that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother also will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council or whoever calls his brother raka. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Yes, God's law simply states you shall not murder. You can go back in Exodus 20 and read that. Others have taken that and taught it in Jesus' day and explained it to mean that whoever murders will be liable to judgment... Yes, murder is against the law of God. Is that judgment God's judgment or man's judgment? Could be both, could be one or the other. But Jesus takes it a step further and says, but I say to you, as I've said, not reinventing the law, but accurately and appropriately teaching and applying it, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it's not just the act of murder, it's the anger in our heart which is equated with murder in God's eyes. The sin of anger, unrighteous anger, is the same as the sin of murder. The judgment for anger is the same judgment as murder. Jesus doesn't stop there. You can insult your brother. Raka, the Greek term, is a term of abuse expressed out of anger. Or the third point, you can call him a fool. So you can insult your brother or slander them and you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Murder, anger, insult, slander, all amount to the judgment of God. It's not just the act of murder, of taking someone else's life that is against God's law and liable to judgment. It's the angry thoughts of our hearts and the slanderous, insulting words of our lips that are liable to the same judgment. Like I said, pretty light topics, aren't they? Because I think all of us at this point need to say, thanks be to God, that his love and grace covers a multitude of sins. Don't we? That with the Lord there is full forgiveness? Because who here hasn't been angry with a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Maybe in your own home. Who here hasn't let words slip from our mouths 
that insult or slander somebody. And Jesus says, well, you're liable to the hell of fire. Nothing to look forward to there. So thanks be to God for his mercy and grace, first and foremost. But as we wipe the sweat off our brows and let out a sigh of relief because of God's mercy, we actually need to keep reading because Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't want us merely towing the line, as I said, even if he's made that line appear much more clearer, much more clear and closer to our toes than we might have originally thought or what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. Now, he doesn't just want us to toe the line. He draws a different line altogether, one that he wants us to move towards, a line of love, that extra mile I was speaking of. So, he says, therefore, in verse 23, if you're offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, stop what you're doing and go work it out. Leave your gift at the altar. If you've come to church and you're about to share communion or sing songs of praise to God and you remember... I haven't dealt with that. Leave what you're doing and go and do it. Be reconciled to your brother. There's an urgency Jesus puts here, isn't there? Like, it's important enough to interrupt worship. Surely worship's the most, you know, nothing should stop us getting to church. Well, actually, there are a few things. And one of them is this. God doesn't want your sacrifice. The prophets told God's people that, didn't didn't they? Away with your sacrifice. I don't want your your worship. I want justice to roll down like waters and righteousness, like ever-flowing streams. Amos says quite clearly, God says, I hate, I despise your festivals. I don't take any delight in your assemblies when you come and gather, even though you're offering me offerings, burnt offerings and grain offerings. I'm not going to accept them because there's no justice, there's no love, there's no righteousness amongst you. We know elsewhere in the New Testament we're told don't let the sun go down on your anger. Here Jesus is saying don't even bother come to the temple. Work it out. And it's not when you're angry with someone, it's actually when you've caused your brother or sister to be angry with you. If you don't have communion with your fellow brother and sister in Christ, Why come and share communion here? To which again, I need all the grace of God because I know how I respond when someone's angry with me. Much easier to duck your head in the sand and go sulk, isn't it? Go be silent. That's my tendency. It's hard enough to work out in our own homes, isn't it? Let alone outside of our homes. I think it's easier just to duck our head in the sand and pretend it's not there and hopefully it'll go away if we don't see the person long enough (laughs) rather than actually go through the hard yards of working it out, maybe fighting it out and reconciling. The richness of that. The other way looks easier, doesn't it? Feels easier. But in the long term, it's not. This is one moment, very few occasions, that if someone actually got up and walked out halfway through my sermon, it might actually be a good thing. Go and reconcile to your brother or sister in Christ. Jesus is talking about taking action here in the righteousness that we have in him. Not to get it, but in the the very righteousness, that gift of righteousness gives us the freedom 
and the conscience to be able to go and actually reconcile with our brothers and sisters. And we need all the grace and power of God to be able to do that ourselves, don't we? It's not enough just to do the right thing. Jesus calls us to do the love thing, to reach out and settle matters and do it quickly. Paul teaches in Romans 12, as far as it is possible with you, and don't use that little phrase as an excuse, it's not a get out of jail free card. No, as much as it's possible with you, do everything you can to live peaceably with everybody. There are times when it's not up to us, we can't do it. But as much as we are able, we should be. Go and resolve whatever anger there is as soon as you can. Don't murder. Don't get angry in your heart. Don't speak slanderous words. And resolve the issues. That's what Christ has come to do, hasn't he? God was in Christ reconciling the world. He didn't say, I'm just going to duck my head in the sand. He went and dealt with it. I think a lot of us, self-included, need to hear this and actually act upon it too, in the grace of God. And Jesus does the same here with lust and adultery. Just as the, the Pharisees and scribes were doing with murder, keeping a pretty narrow interpretation of the law and what judgment was to come regarding uh, anger, they were doing with sexual sin, with adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Straight out of the Ten Commandments, number seven. But I say to you, again, not reinventing the wheel, not adding a new law or writing his own version, but rightly and appropriately interpreting and applying God's law. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, depending on your translation, you might have with lust, with lustful intent, with certain desire. Any of them are, are good and fine. They carry the same meaning. But I like the way the ESV includes that word intent. Because it's not usually the first glance, is it? That's the problem. The problem comes with a second glance and the lingering glance, the lingering look afterwards, the intent that builds as we let our eyes wander and our minds wander and desire grow in our heart. That very word desire is behind those words lust or lustful intent. It's not so much the look that's the problem, it's the desire behind it. There's a difference I think most of us would know between looking and lusting. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It might not take much to go from a look to a lustful look, maybe just that second glance. But there is a difference, which is what Jesus points out here. It's not the mere physical act, no mere physical act. It's not just the physical act of adultery which goes against God's command. It's what's taking place in our heart, once again, just like with murder and anger. Look at a woman or a man, I think we need to put it both ways, with lustful intent, Jesus says, and you've already committed adultery in your heart. In God's eyes, according to his law, you don't need to commit the physical act to commit adultery. It's already taken place in your heart and your mind, and that amounts to adultery, a break of God's commandments in his eyes. Which is helpful, isn't it? For those who are single or dating, perhaps engaged, trying to work out where to draw the line and what's too far and what isn't. Lustful intent equates with adultery. 
Us fellas, young and old, single, married, divorced, widowed, whatever, we are generally more visually wired than women when it comes to these things. And so this is especially a word for us, I believe. But that's not to say it's not a word for the girls and the young women and the older women with us either. John Stott, pastor, theologian and commentator, he remained single and celibate his entire life. As he writes on this passage, he encourages the women in the church to be wise and mindful in this area as well. And in particular, he just made a comment in regards to fashion. He says it would be silly, and he's writing 40 years ago, and I say that not to say he's being old-fashioned, but actually to say how much more do we need to hear this today. He says it would be silly to legislate about fashion. Don't make too many rules. But it would be wise to ask women to make this distinction. What's the distinction? It's one thing to make yourself attractive... It's another to make yourself deliberately seductive. You girls know the difference, he says, and so do we men. I think it's a good thing for us to be hearing, a good thing for us to be teaching our daughters as they grow up in this day and age. And I would add, we often turn to David and his time with Bathsheba, don't we? His murder, his adultery. But we've also got the story of someone like Potiphar's wife, With Joseph in scripture, we have a woman pursuing a man with lustful intent. They're both there. Potiphar's wife, we're told, cast her eye on Joseph. We're told Joseph was a handsome man in form and appearance, but she cast her eye on him. And I think that's the difference between a look and lustful intent, the way she's casting her eye. Nothing wrong with noticing somebody's handsome or attractive. Joseph, we know, refused her advances, but she wouldn't take no for an answer. She had an opportunity to stop, but she didn't. She pursued him further, asked him to lie with her, to which Joseph responds by fleeing. And we know the story, don't we? That time his robe, she caught his robe. And in one sense, at that point in time, Potiphar's wife threatened to undo all the blessings of God that Egypt had received because of Joseph's faithfulness. Joseph gives us a very good and practical lesson for what to do with lust, doesn't he? Flee from it. Flee from temptation. And David's the same. He had opportunity to stop as well, to turn what was just a look, saw Bathsheba bathing there on the roof. Now, David probably should have been out at battle with his men, a lesson that idleness leads to sin or can lead to sin. But when he saw her bathing on the roof, he could have looked away. He should have looked away. Instead, he questioned, he asked, he did some research and said, who is that woman? And when he found out who she was, that she was married to Uriah, he should have said, right, she's off limits, not mine. She's already married. But he didn't. He continued to pursue and pursue and dug himself deeper and deeper, even to the point of murdering Uriah. Not just in his heart, but in action. I had that reading from James read out for us because it tells us something of this life cycle the birth of sin with desire. That passage started, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Sounds a bit like a beatitude, doesn't it? Isn't that interesting that Jesus' brother would speak in the same way as Jesus? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, the regalia of Christ, his righteousness and life eternal, which God has promised to those who love him. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is to each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, so it's joined with something, joined with that temptation, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Plenty of gates in the world, plenty of voices, plenty of images, plenty of temptations out there in the world, aren't there? External from ourselves, but maybe not our own doing. But that object, that image, is given power, is given life when it's met with our own desire. And when that desire of ours conceived with that temptation, then it gives birth to sin, which in turn brings forth death, the wages of sin. And again, Jesus' teaching here should make us all gulp. Not only for those who struggle in this area of sexual sin, but in any and every form of temptation. Because later on in Matthew, Jesus says something very similar, uses very similar imagery for any form of temptation and sin. Better to enter life, he says, with one eye or crippled and lame than be thrown into the hell of fire with all your faculties. Take heed, Paul says, lest you fall. Don't think that you're beyond this. Don't think that you're barleys from this sort of temptation. Don't think you're immune from it. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Even the most simplest, benign things of the world, common forms of temptation, are powerful enough when mixed with our desire, sinful desire, to make us fall into sin. But Paul's also saying in that that we're not alone in our struggle and temp- with temptation and sin. He goes on to encourage us. God is faithful in the battle, in the guilt, in the shame. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, see he's with us even in that. With the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I wonder when we're facing temptation, whether we just try to, through our own grit and determination and self-control, try to resist. And that's good. But on our own, it's going to be more powerful than we are. God is the one who provides the way of escape. God doesn't only forgive sinners, as wonderful as that is, God also provides the way of escape so we can avoid sin. So we don't need to let our desires be overtaken by temptation. I've spoken before about the arrest of Eds as you drive down the freeway and the, for the trucks that lose their brakes. Before they lose control at the bottom of the hill, they're meant to take the arrest of Ed before destruction happens. Potiphar's wife had the opportunity to take an arrest of Ed when Joseph said, no, this is not right. David had many opportunities, didn't he, to take an arrest of Ed of grace and say, enough's enough, I need to turn away and stop pursuing this. How often do we miss the arrest of beds, thinking we've got this under control? But before we know it, it's too late. God provides a way of escape. So look to him in the middle of the temptation that you might endure it. 
If need be, Jesus says, tear out your right eye, cut off your right hand. I don't think he's advocating self-mutilation here. But he's telling us how serious this is. He's telling us do whatever we can to remove the temptation from us, to remove the cause, the, the difference between that look and the lustful look. The difference between having a temptation there and then it mixing with the desire in our heart and causing us to sin. It's better, he says, than you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. That's what's at stake here. And it's really not worth it, is it? If we're honest for that fleeting moment of pleasure compared to the eternal weight of glory and joy and eternal life, no comparison. We're to go the extra mile, not just resist the temptation, not even just flee from it, but actually avoid it. Not just avoid the opportunity, but take decisive action to remove ourselves and the sin from us. Don't take the second look. Don't sit in the car together late at night if you're not married. Don't have your phone or device in your bedroom. Put the family filter on it. Don't watch that movie. Most of us here, if you're anything like me, you've got to be careful with the things you watch because you know it won't take much, will it, for what you see to actually then get mixed with a desire and make us fall into sin. On its own, there may be nothing wrong with those desires. Many of our desires are good God-given desires. It's good to desire food. Food's a good gift, isn't it? It keeps us going. Have too much of it, and it's not healthy for us, is it? So it's not the desire. Put that good and godly desire with enticing images that tempt us to take things outside of God's will and for us to take them, in this case, within the context of marriage. And something good turns into something very ugly and, in fact, very deadly. (coughs) Now, I said last week, I believed I was preaching to the converted. I still believe that. But I also know I'm preaching to a bunch of sinners, self-included. Converted, believing, saved sinners but sinners nonetheless who still wrestle with some of these things. And even just talking about them like this might raise them in our hearts and minds in ways that they haven't for a long time. And we're not just sinners who have committed a few misdemeanours. We go to church, so we we wouldn't do this big... No, what what Jesus says here is we are sinners who are guilty of murder and adultery. So I want to remind us this morning where we began in this series, where this sermon of Jesus began, in the Beatitudes, with God's face shining, God the Father smiling upon his children. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit who know they need God's help and him to rescue them from their trouble. Blessed are those who mourn. God's face shines upon those who grieve their sin when they fall into temptation. God smiles upon those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness that we cannot attain no matter how hard we try on our own. But God smiles upon them because they will be satisfied in Christ with that righteousness. As we were sharing on Wednesday night, going through these, uh, these same passages, to gain the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, 
Jesus' original hearers, they would have thought, that's impossible. We can't. They're, the, they're the goody two-shoes of the, of the day. They're the good guys. We often paint them in bad light. They're the ones that are trying to do that. It would have seemed impossible what Jesus is expecting here. And yet at the same time, it's really easy because the Pharisees' righteousness was nothing. It was all a facade. It was all external. There was nothing of the heart there. Friends, you and I, all of us together, may well still wrestle with sin in our flesh and battle with temptation. We're not alone in that. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and vice versa. They're opposed. They wage war within our bodies. But in Christ, I want to remind us of this. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian believer who trusts in Christ, then that is where you are. You are in him. And that is where this battle takes place, in Christ, not outside of it, not outside of him. And it's also where we're going to find strength to be more than conquerors and to endure the temptation in him. And so we need to hear this again and again, as Paul says in Corinthians. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers. None of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And if we put that together with the Sermon on the Mount, then where do any of us stand? Well, this is where you stand. Such were some of you. Past tense. Might still be wrestling with it even. But in Christ Jesus, you were that. You are no longer that. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of your Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only there that we will ever find the grace and strength to resist sin and say no to temptation. In Christ, as forgiven saints. You were once like this, but not anymore. That's been put to death. We might still wrestle with these things, but the wrestle in itself is evidence that it goes against the grain of our new nature in Christ. Keep wrestling, but wrestle in his strength and his grace. Because our faith in Christ is not only that he forgives us in what is done on the cross, our faith in Christ also holds fast to the promises that he gives us those ways of escape, that we will endure it, and that faith takes those ways of escape. Not just to protect our own hearts, but to protect our families and our churches. And to be light to the world. Hold fast to the promises of Christ. Just last week, I want to read you, just to finish, some words from Spurgeon came across my inbox. Quite appropriate in regards to fighting sin. We go to Christ for forgiveness. Good. Right? But then too often we look to the law for power to fight our sins. We go to Christ for forgiveness, but then too often we look to the law for power to fight our sins. Paul issues this rebuke. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? 
having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Take your sins to Christ's cross, for the flesh can only be crucified there. We are crucified with him. The only weapon to fight sin, Spurgeon says with, is the spear that pierced the side of Jesus. Somewhat poetic imagery, but he's saying it's only at the cross that we'll ever find the power to fight sin. To give an illustration, he says, if you want to overcome an angry temper, it's there in Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? How do you go about it? It's very possible that you've never tried the right way of going to Jesus with it. How did I get salvation? Well, I came to Jesus just as I was, and I trusted him to save me. I must kill my angry temper in the same way. It's the only way I can ever kill it. I must go to the cross with it and say, Jesus, Lord, I trust you to deliver me from it. It's the only way to give it a death blow. All your prayers, your repentance and your tears, all of them put together are worth nothing apart from Christ. Only Jesus can do helpless sinners good and helpless saints too. You must be conquerors through him who has loved you if you're to be a conqueror at all. Let's pray. Father God, you know the wrestles of our own hearts. You know the troubles in our own homes and relationships where there's anger and sin that rises up. And Father, you've called us to work those things out, to love one another, to forgive, to show mercy and patience. And yet none of that we can do in our own strength. We can only forgive and love because you have first loved us and forgiven us much for which we're so grateful. And this morning we're just reminded just how deep our sin is, but how much more deep is your love for us. Father, these are no light things that we speak about, and they're very practical things and very confronting things. And yet they're good things for us to be hearing, all the more to hear them in the grace of Christ that we would stand and walk out of here, convicted maybe, and yet forgiven. And therefore knowing there's no condemnation, but there's actually freedom and joy and power to live as you've called us to live, as we live not by the flesh but by the Spirit, and as we look not to ourselves but to Christ our Lord and Saviour, who is our strength and our refuge our very joy and peace, in whose name we pray. Amen.